1: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. On this final weekend of the year on Face the Nation, it wouldn't be 2020 without last minute breaking news. And there's a lot of it today. First, that early Christmas morning explosion that rocked the city of Nashville. We'll talk with the mayor of Nashville, John Cooper. Former FBI assistant director for counterintelligence Frank Figluzzi will also be with us. Then an update on the biggest story of the year, the COVID-19 pandemic. More than a million Americans have been vaccinated so far as coronavirus cases, deaths and hospitalizations continue to climb dramatically. The governor of California says his state could see, quote, a surge on top of surge on top of a surge in the next two months, as millions of Americans ignore CDC recommendations to stay home this holiday season. We'll talk with former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. That massive aid bill negotiated by Congress and the administration has been torpedoed by the president. His refusal to sign is putting a staggering amount of financial aid in jeopardy, just as struggling Americans need it the most. In these final weeks of the Trump administration, ironically, it's Democrats who are in agreement with Mr. Trump on his demand for additional payments, which has split the president from most Republicans. One thing Americans are not divided on, 2020 will go down in history as one of the worst years ever at least in our lifetime. With political and racial divisions plaguing our society, what can be done to unite the country? We'll have a discussion on race, leadership, and moving forward with our holiday book panel. We'll talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist, Isabel Wilkerson. Her new book is Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. His truth is marching on. John Lewis and the Power of Hope is the latest from presidential historian, John Meacham. Susan Glasser, writer for The New Yorker, and her husband, chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, Peter Baker, wrote The Man Who Ran Washington, the life and times of James A. Baker III. Plus, we'll talk with two Midwest governors, Michigan Democrat Gretchen Whitmer and Ohio Republican Mike DeWine. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to face the nation. There are only four and a half days left in 2020 and the wicked blow this year has dealt is not letting up. There have been more than 80 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide. Here in the US, we've seen nearly 19 million infections and more than 331,000 deaths. Los Angeles County alone is seeing a coronavirus death every 10 minutes. Washington is quiet as the president vacations at his golf resort in Florida. But yesterday, jobless benefits for more than 14 million Americans ran out. And the government could shut down just after midnight tomorrow if Mr. Trump does not sign the COVID relief bill. This comes on top of the Christmas morning bombing in Nashville, which left three people hospitalized and decimated part of the city. We begin there this morning with CBS News correspondent Mola Langi.
0: Well, Margaret, there are more than 250 federal agents on the ground here in Nashville continuing to investigate. The FBI says they've received more than 500 tips, and CBS News has learned they have zeroed in on a person of interest. (laughs) The day after an RV exploded in Nashville, leveling parts of downtown, federal agents raided a home tied to Anthony Quinn Warner, identified by the FBI as a person of interest in the blast. This Google Maps image is partly why the feds ended up at the home just outside Nashville. Notice the RV parked behind the wood fence. Investigators believe it matches the description of the one used in the explosion. On Christmas morning, the RV was found blaring a recorded warning, an ominous countdown. In addition to three injuries, human remains were found around the scene. Now it's unclear to whom they belong, but authorities say possibly the suspect. We're working under that assumption and processing as such. At this point, the FBI says they do not believe there are any additional public threats. Parts of the downtown area remain a crime scene as investigators sweep through the streets for evidence, keeping an eye out for components of whatever caused this massive blast felt miles away.
3: It's like a. A giant jigsaw puzzle created by a bomb that throws pieces of evidence across multiple city blocks.
0: Well, the RV exploded while parked next to an AT&T transmission building, knocking out cell and Wi-Fi service uh, in the area. The fire department here says it could take a couple more days for that to be restored, Margaret.
2: Mola Lange, thank you. We want to go now to the mayor of Nashville, John Cooper. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. CBS is reporting that a person of interest in this explosion has been identified. Is there any update yet on the motive behind this bombing or who carried it out?
4: I think everybody feels like there's a lot of momentum behind the investigation, and I expect a lot of answers, uh, a lot of questions will be answered uh, relatively soon. Uh, We've got hundreds of agents on the ground working very hard.
2: The person of interest CBS is reporting is a Nashville area resident named Anthony Quinn Warner. He's been described as a 63-year-old white man who had an RV similar to the one in the explosion. Do you know if he is the suspect and and what his status is?
4: Well, I I know what you know, what the authorities are reporting to the public. Um, Again, I just think there's a lot of momentum in the investigation. And uh, it's so... I think there's a lot of public interest because it's so shocking that on Christmas morning, this time of greatest hope, you have a bombing, a deliberate bombing. Uh, how can this be? And the public, I know, is anxious to try to understand it better.
2: Uh, absolutely. You said that this was not typical of terrorism. You called it an infrastructure attack. What did you mean by that?
4: Well, those of us in Nashville realize that on Second Avenue, there's a big at t facility. And the truck was parked adjacent to this large historic AT&T facility which happens to be in downtown Nashville somewhat surprisingly and to all of us locally uh, it feels like there has to be some connection with the AT&T facility and the site of the bombing um, you know and that that's just that's a bit of just local insight into that it's got to have something to do with the infrastructure.
2: Well, we know service was knocked out in parts of Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky. This mm. was far-reaching. When will service be restored? And, and do you also need help from the president, as the governor has asked?
4: <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. The governor and I have talked about this. Um, the damage on 2nd Avenue is not dissimilar than what the tornado inf- inflicted on Nashville in bigger parts of Nashville rather than just on one street. And so we're going to need to get this rebuilt. It's part of our historic identity of Nashville, this kind of late Victorian streetscape that ended up being bombed. And the businesses there, they're just going through COVID, they've had the worst nine months that you could have as a business and then now to be affected by a bombing. Uh, Of course, we're going to need help. And we may need some help in uh, rehardening our infrastructure. Now the AT&T building itself, I think a lot of it probably survived very well, but you have flooding after these events mm-hmm. that gathers in basements, and so some of the problem may have been the result of the cure than from the bombing itself.
2: And how long before service is restored?
4: Well, I know AT&T is working very hard and sent a lot of trucks to Nashville to get this back online. They'll have to tell you when it will be, but every... Everybody's working hard to solve the problem.
2: Do you feel confident that there is no ongoing threat to your city?
4: I, I feel confident in repeating what the authorities, uh, what the investigators said yesterday to Nashville, that they think that the threat is over, that the Nashville is safe, uh, that there aren't any other bombs. I think they wouldn't have said that unless they were very confident that that is true.
2: You also have an ongoing covid spike in the state of tennessee Hmm. that you're dealing with and you're rolling out the covid vaccine in your city Uh, how is all of this coming together is it complicating the response
4: well this is our year of first responder you know we we've had a lot of brave nurses and doctors all year long on christmas day six incredibly heroic police officers get added to our role of honor in nashville for 2020. Uh, COVID, of course, makes everything harder. We are in the middle of a spike. It's hard to know, um, post-Christmas, where that, those numbers are headed to. Uh, in Nashville, we've dealt with it reasonably well. We've had a mask mandate and we've had restrictions on gatherings and, um, that have been going on for some time. It's part of how our businesses are suffering. Our hospitality area, our the gatherings have been restricted and so the businesses that were bombed are still in the middle of having a COVID recovery. Again, it's part of needing response by the federal government, both from the bomb- bombing and, and for COVID also.
2: All right, Mr. Mayor, good luck and, and good luck to everyone well, in your city. Thank you. We wanna go now to Frank Figluzzi, he is the former assistant director for counterintelligence at the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the author of the upcoming book, The FBI Way. He joins us from Houston. Good morning.
5: Good morning, Margaret.
2: This was a significant explosive device detonated in a major US metropolitan area, and yet there was no threat detected beforehand. How confident are you that there is no broader threat in the country?
5: So my confidence uh, comes out of the language that law enforcement has been using as recently as the press conference yesterday afternoon. When you hear law enforcement leaders say things like they're confident that the city is safe, that there is no additional threat, that there's no additional explosives attached to this incident, and that they're confident they will find out who did this, that's a code for we know who did it and we've got our man. And I I say man because the statistics tell us that bombings are largely committed by men.
2: Well, the person of interest that CBS News is reporting is uh, Anthony Quinn Warner. Federal investigators are not calling him a suspect. Do you believe that he is? Do you know anything about him?
5: Margaret, I, I do from observations experience and from talking to sources, I do believe that we'll fairly quickly see Warner uh, turned from person of interest to the subject of the investigation, and I think right now we're all waiting for DNA results of that tissue that we all heard has been found in and around the scene.
2: And you believe that may be him?
5: I think it's quite likely that this was a suicide mission for this individual. If there's any comfort to be taken here, it's that this may likely end up being not connected to a larger group or organization, international or domestic, but rather a personal, real or perceived uh, beef acting out on something that may or may not relate to that AT&T building. Mm -hmm. It's going to be personal to him. The choice of Christmas morning deserted street was not about hurting people or sending a political or ideological message, but rather some personal connection to that building to Christmas Day or some other thing that caused him to act out.
2: You know, the governor of Tennessee described this as an attack, and he said it was a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. It blew up not just that RV, but it decimated at least 41 buildings in the surrounding area. How easy is it to make a bomb of that scale and do it underneath the radar without law enforcement knowing this threat was there?
5: Yeah, I think this is a wake up call and a warning for all of us uh, about how vulnerable our infrastructure is, how relatively easy it is for a single individual to do this. Now, we've concentrated post 9-11 on getting our hands around all the chemical companies, mass orders of precursors for known explosives, and look what an individual can do on his or her own when they simply amass quantities of things that are under the radar screen. So here's the takeaway with this. The public has to be extremely vigilant about those around them that are talking about acting out or that might be able to do this, shop owners and companies who are seeing smaller orders of precursors. That's where our vulnerability vulnerability is. And and Margaret, the the notion of a copycat, seeing what's happened in Nashville and trying to do this themselves is very real. And we should be concerned about that.
2: But in your professional opinion, operation of this size, could it have been completely undertaken by a single actor?
5: We saw this in the uh, in the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. You'll remember Timothy McVeigh, largely, perhaps with one or two cohorts, uh, did this entirely by himself, getting uh, huge amounts of fertilizer. So the short answer is, yes, it can be done. It's not the last time we'll see this, but we're, we should be thankful that this happened with, with very few casualties.
2: CBS is reporting this morning that witnesses told investigators, the uh, individual here we're talking about, Mr. Warner, may have had an issue with 5G technology and online conspiracy theories stemming from it. Um, To you, is that discernible intent here? And when you were talking about trying to figure out what motivates him and copycats, what are you most concerned about going forward? This is a pretty tense time in the country.
5: Yep. I don't have to tell you we're living in an incredibly uh, politically charged environment. There's tremendous, dangerous polarization and it's being fueled by social media conspiracy theorists out there. And yes, I'm aware that there are groups and individuals who seem to think that 5G technology might be the cause of COVID, um, that technology generally is targeting us. Um, You'll find almost anything um, imaginable and unimaginable online, and it may be that this is help, uh, partially what drove this individual, and that's why we, we need to speak the truth about what 5G is, where COVID came from, and all of this, but all of that increases the possibility of a copycat mm-hmm. operator, and we've got to be extremely vigilant as we move into the next couple of weeks where yeah. we're going to see the yeah. nation increasingly polarized about election results and a coming inauguration.
2: All right. Frank Thank you for your analysis. We want to go now to former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's also on the board at Pfizer and joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. You You predicted last Sunday we'd have about three more weeks of increasing infections. Uh, We ask you every week, where are we at this point? What are you thinking now?
6: Well, look, there are signs that the number of new daily cases is starting to plateau. It might be an extended plateau, but we're seeing a leveling off in new cases right now. Some of that is the holiday effect. It's under-reporting around the holidays, but there is a discernible trend that we were taking even into the holidays. Um, But once again, the number of hospitalizations and the number of deaths is likely to lag by about two to three weeks. So even if we start to see a plateau in cases and a decline in the first week in January, it's really not going to be towards the end of January that we start to see the burden on hospitals begin to Um, lesson, and we start to see deaths plateau. So we have a grim month ahead of us. We have a very difficult month uh, ahead of us. And right now, the cases are being led by the coasts, California, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, to some extent. When you look at the Midwest, when you look at the Great Lakes region, Illinois, Michigan, you're starting to see cases come down quite discernibly. So the places where the infection was first are now, um, it's now slowing, and it's the East Coast and the West Coast, and Florida as well, where cases are still building.
2: This was the deadliest week in the deadliest month for people in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. We know vaccinations began there uh, last Monday. How soon do you think it will be before we see that relief?
6: Well, vaccinations are gonna take about three weeks to get through all the nursing homes. I mean, we will start to see some in- some indication that the vaccines are probably having an effect maybe as early as this week, because we know that immunity does start to kick in maybe a week after vaccination. They went into the skilled nursing facilities first and vaccinated there first. So you have some of the highest risk people in those facilities. So that will start to have an impact on the mortality trends with COVID. But You know, it's coming late in the season, um, and it's going to take a couple of weeks, maybe a week to 10 days, for partial immunity to kick in. And to get full immunity, especially in an older population, you really need the booster. We do see, in a younger population, more robust immunity after that first dose. But in the older populations, it really requires a second dose to get the full effects of the immunity from the vaccine.
2: The president tweeted this morning, cases in California have risen despite the lockdown, yet Florida and others are open and doing well. He seems to be encouraging the lifting of local restrictions. Is that medically advisable?
6: Well, look, Florida had 17,000 cases on the 26th. They have around 21,000 deaths now. I think the fourth highest in the country in terms of the number of COVID deaths and the third highest in terms of the number of um, total cases. It is true that California is having a worse epidemic right now, although there's some signs that um, the epidemic may be plateauing in Northern California. I don't think any part of the country has really done especially well with COVID. Every state has grappled with this. And so I wouldn't be trying to make you know comparisons between different states in terms of how they've approached this. Every state has had to approach it differently because they've all had different challenges. Um, some states are far more dense, like California, than other states. Florida, too, is dense. And I think that's why they're experiencing a very difficult uh, epidemic right now. So Florida's Mm -hmm. not out of the woods by a long shot.
2: Canada is now saying that it has detected evidence of that new strain of coronavirus on its shores. That means it's here in North America. Um, The U.S. is set to begin requiring those coming from the United Kingdom, where this is thought to have originated, uh, and, and people will have to be tested within 72 hours of arrival. Is that gonna make any impact?
6: Well, I think it's probably here in the United States, and, and it could be here in um, a reasonable number at this point. We're, we don't sequence a lot of um, samples in this country, and a lot of that sequencing that does get done gets done in private labs and doesn't get aggregated into public database that needs, databases, that needs to be fixed. In the UK, they're sequencing about 10% of all the samples. Here, we're doing a fraction of 1%. I'm on a board of Illumina, one of the companies that's involved in sequencing. We probably need a better approach to more systematically sequence strains in the United States to track changes and new variants in this virus. We're not doing that. And so we probably wouldn't be detecting it if it was here in sort of low numbers, which I suspect it is.
2: So maybe here, we just don't know it. Um, On the vaccine, Nine and a half million doses of the two approved vaccines have been distributed as of the week past. The CDC says a bit more than a million vaccinations have actually taken place. What do you think of this pace?
6: Well, the pace is slower than what was stated. I think it's probably realistic to think that the pace is going to be a little bit slower, especially as we try to move through hard-to-vaccinate populations next month. Um, I suspect there's more than a million who've been vaccinated. There's a lag in reporting, but the idea that we're going to get to 20 million vaccines vaccinations by the end of the year. That's probably unrealistic at this point. And remember that's after they cut um, in half, they only shipped about 45% of the vaccines to states. So uh, the states weren't able to absorb this. Now, I think think they'll get up and running and get better systems in place to distribute these vaccines more efficiently. I think they're gonna turn to CVS and Walgreens to start distributing them in a community. And that's a pretty big footprint. But again, as you get out into the community to try to vaccinate a, a harder to reach population, it's gonna become significantly more difficult to get those vaccines out. And so the Mm -hmm. fact that we've struggled to vaccinate healthcare workers and nursing home patients, that shows we need to be investing more in these efforts.
2: Good point. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you as always for your analysis. And before you go, I do want to uh, thank you. The whole team wants to thank you for helping to guide our viewers and us through this crisis. And I wanna thank your wife and your family for sacrificing your Sunday mornings so that you can join us here. We'll see you next year.
6: Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.
2: Congress will be back in session tomorrow to try to resolve its standoff with President Trump. As of this morning, he is refusing to sign the COVID relief bill. And if he doesn't sign it, or if he vetoes it, the impact to tens of millions of Americans and the U.S. economy could be enormous. Jobless benefits for more than 14 million people stopped yesterday. The $300 a week payment was supposed to be extended until mid-March. Without the bill's extension, the federal moratorium on housing evictions will end on Thursday, impacting as many as 30 million Americans. The president insists that he wants to boost individual payments from $600 to 2,000 for Americans who make less than $75,000 a year. But that is a figure that most Republicans think is just too high. Most urgently, the bill funds the government and without another temporary funding measure it could shut down at midnight tomorrow we'll be back in a moment you can go to our website at facenation.com for more of what didn't make it to air today our full book panel is available on our youtube channel and a version of that is coming up
0: this episode is brought in part to you by audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car.
2: Today, we wanted to bring together two governors from particularly hard hit states this year, Ohio Republican Mike DeWine and Michigan Democrat Gretchen Whitmer. Good morning to both of you governors. Good morning.
7: Good to be with you. Thank you very much,
2: Margaret. Uh, You know, the responsibility of dealing with this pandemic, uh, including the decisions on health restrictions, on testing, how you're going to get this vaccine to your constituents, has really been placed on you as the executives in your state. Do you feel like the country learned this year the value of their local government, Governor Whitmer? Well, I
8: hope so. I know that this is not a moment that any one of us governors would have chosen to be in, and yet it was incumbent on us to rise to this challenge and to do what we needed to do to protect the people that we serve. Uh, in lieu of a, a broader national strategy, it really was on us to navigate, and I think we've done, uh,
2: done a lot of it together. And Governor Dewan, do, do you think there is a new appreciation for the local officials versus the focus on the national
7: You know, I think people uh, normally look to their governors in a a crisis, a local crisis. You know, flooding along the Ohio River or uh, tornadoes in Western Ohio, that's normally what you think a governor will respond to. So I think in a sense, they're they're used to, uh, you know, a crisis. But of course, this is once in a hundred years, we haven't seen anything like this at all. And I think one of the things that uh, I have found good about it, frankly, is that, I've gotten to know um, uh, Gretchen, uh, Governor Whitmer. I've got to know all our, our neighboring governors, and you know, we talk we talk quite a bit. And frankly, you know, we have a common enemy. Uh, the common enemy is this virus, and we're, you know, we're we're battling back against it. Uh, you know, there are certainly some people in my state who, uh, you know, disagree with some of the things that, that, that we have done,
2: Governor Whitmer. I mean, viruses don't know borders. Um, Do you feel like as, you know, two Midwesterners here that there is more of a call now to work together regionally to deal with crises like this pandemic? I mean, are you looking at that when it comes, for instance, on how to vaccinate your populations?
8: This virus does not stop at state line. It doesn't stop at party line. This is a common enemy, and that's always been how we've looked at it, trying to learn from the best science Uh, This being a novel virus, we've learned an incredible amount. But when I share information with Governor DeWine and vice versa, I get the benefit of the Cleveland Clinic and all the experts he's talking to. And he gets the benefit of the University of Michigan and all the experts we're talking to.
2: Will you coordinate those strategies on who goes first and who goes last?
7: Well, you know, we share a lot of information and we were on the phone with all the Midwestern governors uh, just a few days ago, and one of the issues, of course, is, uh, you know, what's what's the priority? I think there's been a real consensus among what we call A1 group, uh, which is the, the first responders, our medical people, our EMS, people who are risking their lives every, every single day, uh, as well as where we've taken the most losses, and that is in our nursing homes. I think there's probably going to be more um, lack of consensus uh, among people in general when you get beyond that first group.
2: Governor Whitmer, I wonder how you're thinking of it, because like we're talking about, essential worker is, you know, kind of subjective here. In, In the state of Colorado, I read they're going to begin prioritizing employees at ski resorts, for example, because it's so key to their economy. I mean, how much is this going to vary state by state? Who's essential in Michigan?
8: I think it could vary a great deal. And the thing is, uh, vaccines are coming online and they're going to come at a faster pace. And so doing the hard work of acknowledging who is has the most exposures, who is out there in jobs that are, you know, um, come into contact with the public at greater numbers. These vaccines, what we have to do right now is really to ensure that the public understands these are safe. These are effective as they become more available. We want people to make their plan to get vaccinated.
2: Governor Whitmer and Governor DeWine, both of you have been, you know, criticized for taking extraordinary measures to protect your constituents, but been accused of, you know, overstepping authority, for example. Governor Whitmer, I know you had that extraordinary kidnapping threat. There were threats against you, Governor DeWine, as well. I I wonder how the both of you make sense of that experience. Governor Whitmer? Well, Margaret, I would say this. Every
8: governor in the country is getting some sort of, um, you know, backlash. The backlash that we're getting is because we've gone uh, to take sure that every measure is about saving people's lives. And we have largely had a lot of success. Studies have shown we have saved thousands of lives. And yet, We know COVID-19 is still a very real threat. We're posting the highest numbers that we have in 10 months. Other governors are getting a backlash because they haven't done enough and people have been dying on their watch. There are no easy solutions here, no clearly obvious solutions here. Yet I believe that the right thing to do is to follow the science and to put people's lives first because we can and we will recover from the economic blowback from COVID-19 that that has run amok in our country. What we can't do is, um, you know, bring someone back to life.
2: Governor Dwine.
7: Well, I think it's understandable uh, that people are upset. It's nine months into this, uh, people are tired of it. Um, so I, I, I get it. And, you know, we've asked people to, to make sacrifices, but my message to the people of Ohio continues to be, uh, we should, Do everything we can to save lives and hope is there the vaccine is here now it's going to take a few months you know for everybody to 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 get it but uh, this is not the time to uh, pull back Uh, this is not the time to give up we know business particularly small business continuing to go is very very important we know they've been hit very very hard but um, you got to balance that with with saving the lives
2: Here's to a healthier and happier 2021. Thanks to you both governors. We like to honor tradition on Face the Nation, and each year we talk to authors whose new books have all been named some of the year's best. Four of them join us now. John Meacham's new book is His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser are the co-authors of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. And Isabel Wilkerson is with us to discuss her latest, Caste, The Origins of Our Discontents. Good to see all of you. Um, Isabel, I-, I wanna start with you. Uh, you tackle the very difficult subject of race in your book in which you describe a caste system in our country where you say skin color is really kind of the metric for where you fall in the hierarchy. Does the awakening WITHIN OUR COUNTRY THIS YEAR TO THE ISSUE OF SYSTEMIC RACISM BEGIN BREAKING THAT APART?
9: DESPITE THE RECORD TURNOUT FOR THIS ELECTION, uh, WE HAVE SEEN THE, YOU KNOW, THE RUPTURES THAT ARE AS DEEP AS THEY'VE EVER BEEN. Uh, WE STILL FACE, YOU KNOW, DISTURBING LEVELS OF DIVISION IN OUR COUNTRY. Um, THIS IDEA OF RACIALIZED uh, POLARIZATION STILL CONTINUES. But I do hope that some of the things that have happened over the last year, um, this past summer, particularly involving uh, the sense of awakening and and, um, outrage over what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so, so many people who have become um, part of our conversation. I hope that this has been uh, leading us to some type of awakening to get past these divisions. John, you
2: profiled one of the giants of our uh, civil rights struggle in this country, John Lewis, who we lost this year. Um, And you wrote about his famous march to Selma, where he was severely beaten by law enforcement, even though this started out as a peaceful protest. You said when that footage was shown to the country, there was revulsion all over America. Revulsion, then redemption. Is there anything more American? Right now in America, we have revulsion that Isabel just described again at what happened. Are we at the point of redemption yet?
3: Well, redemption's a complicated thing, and uh, that's something that we have to work on every day. Uh, John Lewis represents, I think, uh, faith in two fundamental forces in life. He was on that bridge because of a faith in God, and he was on that bridge because ultimately of a faith in America. Uh, Frederick Douglass once said, there is no soil so conducive to the growth of reform as American soil. And so there is, progress is possible. And uh, John used to say, when people would say, well, nothing's ever changed, he would say when he was uh, a senior member of Congress, come walk in my shoes. Mm -hmm. Now, that's easy for me to say. I'm a white Southern male Episcopalian. Uh, Things tend to work out for me in this country. I wrote this book and I wanted to profile John Lewis because he represents the embodiment of the best that the religious impulse can play in our public life. And more than any other person I've ever known, he closed the gap between a profession of allegiance to the lessons of the Sermon on the Mount with the practice of those virtues. And I think if we look at stories of people who walk among us and who just walked among us, and we see what they did, and they did something so remarkable, that should give us some faith, some inspiration that we can do the same. Mm
2: -hmm. And and part of that process, Peter and Susan, um, is figuring out how to turn what the country is experiencing into action that falls upon our political leaders. I mean, you, you cover Washington, the both of you, We're seeing a lot of pressure on the president-elect to do something about race and division in this country. A lot of that early on is focused on representation. Does it end there? How does the president-elect begin dealing with this problem? Peter?
10: Well, look, you know, it's not just a question of who you put in your cabinet. That's only a start. There's obviously great uh, uh, wounds out there in this country to heal. And this is a president who has talked about doing that. He's talked about being a bridge builder and talked about being a healer and a person who wants to bring America together. Uh, You know, we talk about, in our book, we talk about James Baker, not so much as a race healer, but as a bridge builder. We talk about how he tried to work with the other party to make things happen. He tried to work with people from other countries and across the Cold War divide with the Soviets to bring the world together. And I think that uh, what Joe Biden is talking about doing is the same kind of thing where we can uh, cross these, these lines and cross these divides and begin to reimagine uh, America in a better way.
2: Susan, it, it just feels so different. The divides feel more bitter and deep Um, how do you do that and is there something unique to the challenge ahead
11: you know margaret i think the thing that was so striking is just how profoundly the political incentives in the country have changed. Uh, it's not just that we've had a uniquely divisive president. Uh, you know, we are often used to presidents more like Joe Biden, who at least talk and pay lip service to wanting to be a uniter, not a divider. So we certainly had a divisive president, but it's also that we've had a country and a political system uh, that that's just lost the ability, it seems, for politicians to work together across the aisle. You know, the question is, have that uh, has that incentive structure? changed so fundamentally that it's actually going to be impossible for even a Joe Biden to come in and sit down uh, and work when the, the incentives and the, the reward
2: system has gone in the other direction to be ever more extreme. And, and Isabel, you in your book start off with a pretty stark image of Choice and and the moment in time. Um, You describe a photo from 1936 in Germany in which a lone man stands in a crowd full of other men. They're all giving Nazi salutes and his hands are are, are folded. It appears defiant almost. Um, Why did you start on this? What does that signify to you?
9: Well, I started with that. It's the photo of, of August Lahnmesser. He was surrounded by people who were caught under the spell of the Nazis, and yet he alone was the one who was on the right side of history. And we all would like to believe that we would be on the right side of history in a situation such as that, that we'd somehow find a way to stand up uh, in favor of justice. Uh, in this, in, in when while we are surrounded by uh, injustice and people who are falling under the spell of that, and so it calls upon all of us to recognize you know, where we happen to be, what each of us can do, uh, the responsibilities that each of us has, and the reason why I speak about hierarchy and caste is because this is part of our inheritance, an inheritance of of this uh, hierarchy that um, that dates back to the time of enslavement. Uh, that, has been, that essentially it was in place for far longer than it was not in place in our country, from Jim Crow, uh, which only ended in the 1960s, and how we live with the after effects of that. And it falls upon each of us to learn the history and to, uh, to be able to reckon with it.
2: I'm interested in this idea, though, of what you were describing as um, a caste system, because in at least political narrative, the past four years have been about disruption. They've been about breaking apart systems. They've been about um, you know, trying to break apart the establishment in particular. But you have a very different view, right? You, you think and have pointed to the 2016 election in particular as about reinforcing those caste systems.
9: Well, you know, a caste system essentially is an artificial, uh, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value, and it dates back to the time of enslavement. And so we've inherited the assumptions, the stereotypes, uh, the rankings that are, have, been, have essentially been assigned to people based upon what they look like, which goes back to the time of enslavement. And I want to take a, a moment to remind ourselves of how long this has been a part of our country, uh, that it's a foundation of the uh, power structure that we have inherited.
2: You know, John, you you have used the phrase "the soul of America." One we hear that, that phrase from the president-elect quite often. Um, we've had the election that was supposed to be the fight for the soul of America. Where are we now? Where does that fight go? Are are mm. we at absolution? Where Where are we?
3: No, we're we're a long way from absolution, and and uh, will be until what uh, Faulkner called the last red and dying evening. Uh, my sense of the soul of the country is that soul in Hebrew and in Greek means breath an arena of contention in which our better angels, to use Lincoln's phrase, do battle against our worst instincts. Many of the worst instincts that Isabel's remarkable work has, has cast light on. And every day is part of that struggle. To go to what Peter and Susan were saying, division in American life is, is not the exception, it's the rule and disagreement, and uh, the impulses of appetite and ambition, and the clash of interests, all of these things are perennial and universal human forces. What we have to do, what we're called to do by history, and by reason, and to some extent by faith, is to devote ourselves to the idea and the reality of making real for everybody the promise of the country which is that we were all created equal and were endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And at every point, Isabel mentioned the right side of history, at every point from Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall, the right side of history has been those who stand on the side of individual rights, of the sanctity of the individual, of liberty under law and of openness not of, you know, We build bridges in this country when we're at our best, not walls. And that may sound like a homily, but it has the virtue of being rooted in history. We'll go around Washington. What are the monuments to? The monuments are to imperfect people and imperfect events, but they are ultimately about liberation and not captivity. And that's what our, the work of politics should be.
2: You know, President Trump, as, we, as I referenced, was elected on this agenda of disrupting the status quo. Kamala Harris is a symbol of change. Joe Biden, though, is seen as a return of the establishment. What is the choice we are making here as, as a country? I mean, in some ways, the Biden platform was about restoring where, where we were. Well, look, Margaret, it's very
11: hard to imagine a world where we're just going to pretend that the last four years didn't happen, right? Uh, You know, I think there was a a palpable sense of returning to normalcy that that powered and animated Joe Biden's campaign. But I think, you know, the question is really whether uh, identity politics uh, is the choice that people on both sides of the aisle are making right now. Uh, Was it really about a policy platform for Biden or even For Donald Trump, you know, to me the lesson of the last few years uh, is that people are much more likely to embrace uh, uh, identities and tribalism that they find to be comfortable in our politics right now at the
2: expense even of a program. Does the disruption become the new foundation here or is it about restoration? Margaret, that, to me, that's the thing that's so
11: uh, uh, notable. Uh, you might want a more normal world, right? That wor- word, normalcy, you know, has never had such political resonance. But the truth is, is that, uh, you know, the world has moved on and there are a number of areas, the Middle East and uh, the recognition of Israel, uh, 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 sort of midwife by the Trump administration by several Arab countries, obviously is is a different fact set and a different reality than the one that was there four years ago. Biden so far has assembled a government uh, that suggests that, that a sort of certainly a return to competence and expertise, uh, bringing people who served already in senior positions in the Obama administration. So there's a continuity. uh, And then I think that the message to people is that Trump represents a discontinuity uh, Mm -hmm. in American politics and policy. But it's it's unclear that that's really the case. And I think, uh, you know, to John's point, uh, we're not just going to wash away the last few years. That's not how this is going to work. It's not over. It's not even the beginning of over. We're not just going to wake up one day and it's all going to be some crazy dream and,
2: you know, tweet storms. (laughs) But Peter, you know, as Americans, we always think it's about us. Um, And we're talking here about us as a country. But for the rest of the world, when when they hear the president-elect say America is back and we're ready to lead, hasn't the world moved on? Hasn't the world changed? Does the world really want America to organize it?
10: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think President-elect Biden uh, probably recognizes that it's not simply a matter of returning to where things were four years ago. And if he doesn't, that's going to be a challenge for him because, in fact, you're right, the world has moved on to some extent. They've seen in the last four years what it's like when America goes in a different direction. I think there's a lot of burned... Uh, feelings out there about international agreements. What, you know, who's gonna wanna enter a new international agreement with the United States if they feel like four years from now, it might just be reversed by the next administration. And that's why I think President-elect Biden does have a challenge in terms of deciding what to keep and what not to keep of what his predecessor has done, partly because of this, the idea of not seeming like we just swing back and forth radically every, every term. He probably will adopt more of, of Trump's uh, positions on China, for instance, not, maybe not the specific tactics on, ta- on tariffs, but mm-hmm. a stronger uh, position against China than the Obama administration had. You can't just simply rerun the past. You're going to have to adapt the future, uh, and that will include at least some uh, of what the last four years has, has, uh, has brought to us.
2: Thanks to all of you for the conversation and for joining us today. And Happy New Year. Stay healthy. We'll be right back. Every day is a great day when you're not worrying about your appliances and home systems. And that's what you get with an American Home Shield warranty. With American Home Shield, you can protect your home and wallet from unexpected breakdowns like leaky faucets or faulty water heaters or wonky thermostats. Now that's something to celebrate. When it comes to protecting your appliances and home systems, don't worry. Be warranty. For twenty percent off plans, go to ahs.com/wondery. For more details, see ahs.com/contracts for coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions.
3: What makes a life a good one?
6: Is it the adventure you have?
2: And that's it for us for 2020 we hope you have a happy and healthy and safe new year and we'll see you next sunday in 2021 for face the nation i'm margaret brennan today's guests were nashville mayor john cooper frank figluzi former fbi assistant director for counterintelligence ohio republican governor mike dewine and michigan democratic governor gretchen whitmer Dr. Scott Gottlieb plus authors Isabel Wilkerson, John Meacham, Peter Baker, and Susan Glasser. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
1: It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Millie Vanilli set the world on fire But when the truth came out Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder Why did everyone blame them And not the man pulling the strings Follow Blame It On The Fame, Millie Vanilli On the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts You can binge all episodes of Blame It On The Fame Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus
3: The Hargan women seem to have it all
1: From the outside looking in We were blessed My mom was amazing